Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I am Scott Guthrie, a neonatologist and the infant medical director of TIPQC. One of the things that I like so much about these podcasts are the interesting people we get to have conversations with about topics that can help improve care for mothers and babies, not only in Tennessee, but anywhere else where this podcast is being listened to. So I'm getting close to wrapping up my time as a TIPQC Infant Medical Director. This podcast has been a really fun part of the job. All of us involved in quality improvement are working to improve the care for babies and their families and getting the chance to sit down and have discussions like this and share ideas is part of the path to progress and ultimately the path to making a difference. Today's discussion will focus on quality improvement and how what is being done globally can intersect with what we do locally. Our guest today has done quality improvement at an international level and here at home. She is going to share with us how ideas generated by one place can be adapted for use in another. So speaking of our guests, let me introduce Dr. Sharla Rent. Dr. Rent is a neonatologist with an interest in global health medicine. She is an assistant professor of pediatrics at Duke University and an affiliate faculty member with the Duke Global Health Institute. Dr. Rent, welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. And are you okay with me calling you Sharla? Absolutely. It's nice to be here. Yeah, so wonderful to have you here. And, you know, as, as we get started, I want our audience just to learn a little bit about you. And, and so I want you to tell us about yourself and specifically how in the world did you get involved in something like neonatology? So I um, am a couple years out of fellowship now, uh, three to four years out, and I always have kind of been interested in procedural based fields and also ones where you can make kind of like a longer difference. And so pediatrics kind of fell naturally in there. I will admit I did dabble with the thought of OB because I liked high risk pregnancies. And so then I think neonatology kind of came really naturally out of those shared interests. And, you know, you mentioned I do a lot of global health work. I started that even before I considered medical school. So when I was in undergrad, I had the opportunity to do my senior engineering design work in Cape Town, South Africa, and we happened to focus on a neonatal project. And so I think that kind of pinged in the back of my head when I went to medicine, kind of the really good ways of incorporating global health and maternal child care. And I mean, you've worked globally as well. You know that the high burden of newborn health needs. And so finding a way for a lifelong career to kind of mesh those worked well for me. Yeah. So you've already mentioned the global health and that's, that's how you and I met through a global health project. And we're going to talk about that in, in a few minutes, but what specifically led you to an interest in global health? I mean, was it something going on when you were like a small child that you're like, this would be cool or something later in life? 
You know, I I get asked that a lot. I'm sure you do as well. There wasn't like a key defining experience for me besides a genuine interest in wanting to travel and um, meet people from different cultures, hear how other people kind of think about the same problems. As I um, kind of moved more into like the medicine side of things, you really, I mean, I think we all kind of feel called to help where the burden is high. And so you certainly see that in global health, you've got the most passionate, dedicated people in partner countries working on issues without the bandwidth to necessarily address everything. And I always figure if I can't seem to say no, if I keep wanting to go, there's got to be something intrinsically driving me to do that. And I have found such benefit in lifelong friendships and partnerships and impact in doing it. I say lifelong as I'm like still relatively young, but it's it's just always felt like the right thing to do. And um, I've had a very supportive like work environment and home environment that have allowed me to do that kind of throughout my training and now faculty career. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell us about some of the places where you've worked, where you've been and, and seen the neonatal experience in, in some of these other countries. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the most significant ones is sort of how you and I met. And so in Ethiopia, um, my when I was in fellowship at the University of Michigan, we had a partnership um, with St. Paul's Millennium Medical College in Addis Ababa. And they, um, at the same time, there was some work going on there around newborn resuscitation um, through another group that I'm a part of called Wax and Gold, and then some work through the section on neonatal perinatal medicine and the Ethiopian Pediatric Society, kind of all of this stuff coming together, looking at how do people think about newborn care? How do you enact strong newborn care programs? How does quality improvement fit into newborn care? And I'm sure we'll delve into that a little bit more too. But I had the opportunity kind of throughout um, my three years of fellowship and then into my early attendingship here to look at both qualitatively, how do we think about newborns and resuscitation? And then more from an implementation QI perspective, how do you actually make changes in newborn care? And, you know, similar to kind of what I just said, there's so much desire to like have strong, robust health systems. And I think that is the cornerstone of having any sort of change, right? And so being able to work in that sort of environment and see the progressive change has been great. Yeah. So that's what I want to explore next. Working in that environment and see change, because we certainly want to see changes in that environment where we've gone and we've spent time and we've made those partnerships with. But let me delve into you just for a second. Uh, when I've done these trips, I've experienced personal change through this. How have what you have seen, what you have experienced, the relationships with, with you made, how has that changed you and exchanged and changed how you interact with patients here in the United States and families? Yeah. You know, I think I always try not to be on service like the week that I come back from being abroad because I think I you realize how little people have elsewhere. Um and how much we have, and I think we all we all know this, right? But I think I I get much more humbled with like how we need to care about the the family and the people, and, and as opposed to just like the doing everything from the medicine aspect. And the 
um, you know, especially a lot of a qualitative work about how do we think about end of life? How do we think about um, who to resuscitate, who not to resuscitate? Um, and how that those conversations are different when you don't have the option to save quite as many babies, right? And so then thinking about how those are the challenges people are working with in like in at St. Paul's Hospital in Ethiopia or in these other settings. And then coming back in our issues are, you know, bed flow and, you know, whether or not to be on this type of high frequency ventilator, you know, there, it's just like a different scope of challenge. And so I think I get very reflective on kind of um, how privileged we are to like have the challenges that we have. Uh, and then at the same time though, just because someone else's hardships are worse, so to speak, doesn't mean that the hardships the families are facing, you know, in our own units, it's still for each family, it's their child and their situation, you know, and so it doesn't matter if they're on the, you know, the, the smaller end of the statistical curve for like the risk, you know, as opposed to like the common situation. Um, it's, you know, it's still very impactful. No, I think you've, you've hit it on the, the nail on the head. It, it's a, the thing I'm hearing you say is it's it's a reset because we get so lost a lot of times in, in the high tech, the equipment, the different medications we can use, and the bureaucratic red tape of, of being a neonatologist and working at a big health institution that experiencing going on a trip like this, working with people and, and seeing the dramatic difference you can make, sometimes quality improvement it's a reset for me a lot of times and, and what's really important is connecting with those families. It's making a difference. And, and sometimes I think in the world we live in that, that gets overshadowed, unfortunately, way too much. And I think like to that end too, just realizing the, the like profoundness of pregnancy and childbirth, I think kind of sets in a little bit more. Um, you know, a lot of my, my current work is looking at bereavement and I'm delving a little bit into like maternal mental health work and kind of how do you su support families if things don't go well during pregnancy. And part of that stemmed out of during fellowship asking the, you know, I talked to doctors and nurses, unfortunately not families for that project, but about kind of how they approach loss and how they, they think about that in a setting where it's much more common than in what we work in. And one of my one of my colleagues in Ethiopia said, you know, you can be walking around eight months pregnant. No one really mentions it. It's kind of, you know, a very personal thing. If you go to the hospital one day and you come back without a baby, just no one mentions it. And there's, you know, just this silence around loss. Um, and part of that people, you know, shared with me had to do with part of it with stigma around like what it means to have lost a child and part of it around fear about if discussing it, are you questioning God's plan? Are you questioning and um, putting yourself at risk for the next pregnancy spiritually or, you know, kind of however you want to think about that. But people are like at the individual level, they want more support, you know? So there's this cultural avoidance of, death or discussing it, which builds in a structural avoidance of providing psychosocial care and support and bereavement support. But there's also kind of like an individual need. And then I think about how 
um, like how hard it is even in the United States to really be there for mothers who lose their babies or how personal that is. I think we're lucky that there's less stigma associated with stillbirth or neonatal loss. There's more of an understanding uh, that it's not the woman's fault. But there, a lot of women still, you know, report feeling shame and they still have, you know, increased risk of depression, anxiety, and kind of coping challenges after loss. So I think, again, to the point of reflection, kind of seeing the same thing almost magnified in one setting kind of helps me reframe in my own setting as well. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about your, your work in this, this area of bereavement in, in the countries where you, you worked. What, what have you done? Yeah. Yeah, this is, I think, I guess kind of my current passion. It's um, newer for me. Uh, it actually came out of my work in resuscit, you know, kind of resuscitation and talking to providers about how they make decisions with resuscitation. And then, you know, that led to questions of, well, what do you do when it doesn't go well? And how do you support bereavement? And so that um, led, actually, I ha- currently am, um, you know, about a quarter away, a third of the way into a two-year grant through the National Palliative Care Research Center to look at bereavement around stillbirth in Tanzania. And so we're looking at kind of healthcare workers, providers on like perceptions of stillbirth versus neonatal death. And then the next part, we'll be doing some interviews with mothers. And so unfortunately, I don't have that qualitative data to share yet, but kind of, um, with talking with my collaborators, it's similar stuff to what I was seeing in Ethiopia as well. A lot of stigma and shame. And if you have a stillbirth or you've lost a child, you might not come back for your postnatal visit. You might not have that touch point with the health system to get screened for mental health interventions. You might not have the support there. Um, I think, you know, in the United States, there's a lot more effort now looking into fathers and bereavement. You know, that's been underlooked at in LMICs. So that's something that we're going to take on as well um, a little bit and see how our, like, how is the whole family unit kind of coping after loss? There is data from, you know, the United States and abroad that most women who have a loss go on to become pregnant in the next year. And so as neonatologists, how that mother is doing, how that father is doing, how the two set of of parents or whoever is doing for that next pregnancy, that'll impact that next baby. It impacts existing children. It impacts the lifelong health of the mom. So I think, you know, bereavement isn't just this short grieving period around the time that you lose your child. It carries on through. um, And I think Man, we have, we have a lot more work to do with that in the United States also, um, but I think there's, it's interesting to work in this space in places where there's almost no infrastructure and different cultural nuances. I'm certainly more of a, a learner than an actor, I think, in a lot of ways um, at my partner sites, but it's, I think it's, I think it's very fascinating and I think it's important. So I like um the WHO actually this summer put out some guidelines for integrating maternal mental health into existing health systems, and people should totally check that out if they're interested in this. But I think there's this movement towards recognizing grief, bereavement, and mental health as important parts of maternal child health care. And I, I hope like the next five to 10 years are like really enlightening and have a lot of progression in how we support women and families. Yeah, just just for our listeners, this is something TipQC has has started to do some work in. We've actually have a few podcasts on this. If you want to go back and look at some of the podcasts on the Butterflies Embrace, which is a bereavement organization uh, here in Tennessee that that actually works with families for that first year, 
after death and, and beyond that, if need be. And then, of course, at our TIPQC conference, uh, the end of March, uh, Dr. Ryan McAdams, who has done a lot of uh, grief work, uh, specifically with professionals, and how we process this as well, uh, how, how, you, how we can support each other during times of grief and grieving as we work with these families. It's a difficult, difficult thing. So, Charlotte, I'm, I'm curious. So as you've had this experience in these other countries, and I love the fact that you said I'm a constant learner, uh, because I, I, I think all of us have to have that mentality when we go and we work with individuals and how different individuals, families, cultures uh, process these things. How do we take what, what you've experienced in, in other parts of the world and then begin to apply this to the United States and the environment that, that we're in? What do you think we can do to, to do a better job of working with people in these situations? Yeah, I think being aware is a key first step. You know, thinking about screening, how can we how can we screen? When should we screen? A lot of women get screened for, you know, depression at their kids' well child visits. If your kid is in the NICU, you're not going to well child visits during some of these peak times. I know resources are scarce and having, you know, a unit psychologist is rare. Um, but how can we at least identify and refer some of these women or pick up on signs that they're having, you know, I mean, you think about bereavement after death, but there's also grief just with having a kid in the NICU. There's mental health challenges with having a kid in the NICU. I think when we think about loss too, there's a huge gap in the health system right now about who kind of manages that, so to speak, because as the neonatologists, we, we're not the, pa the patient's doctor anymore after they pass away, but we're one of the most consistent touch points for families up until that point. So I think we need to have a good reflection on what should be our role with preemptively providing resources and support when things like this are anticipated. I think, you know, obstetricians similarly, it's the woman's less of their patient once they're not pregnant. You know, that's not, they're not their patient, certainly, but, and primary health care is um, varied across the country. I think it's just, it, it's a gap that people don't nicely fall into um, for who helps address this. And so thinking about how we can, how we should. Um, interestingly, so I'm working on a project with our pediatric cardiologists at Duke called Bridging the Gap, which is looking at the gap between like diagnosis and then treatment and services. And one of the things that came up in some of the for formative work there for kiddos with congenital heart disease is the need for psychiatric services and the need for mental health support among families. And so um, I think it, that like that will start to come through also in like little pockets of information about how more help is needed and is there a benefit to having psychology on staff within a unit is there benefit to having access and then you know the other thing that kind of comes to mind is just all of the m health telehealth e-resources that were developed during covid um, which was also a peak of like mental health challenges are there ways to apply some of that and this is in no way my expertise but like apply some of that to um bereavement, grief, mental health challenges for our families are things that we can link people up with um, around discharge. Let's talk about that telehealth usage for a second, because that's how you and I met. Uh, it is, yeah. Yeah, for global health people, COVID was, wow, it was 
horrible, but then there were some things we learned out of it. Uh, and you and I met on something called the Echo Project with the American Academy of Pediatrics. And this was, I thought, absolutely awesome. So tell our audience about what the Echo Project was and what we did and what we're still doing. Yeah. So, I mean, it, first off, it was super fun. Um, but so the AAP is an Echo Super Hub, which I know you know, and but for the listeners too, they it's essentially a virtual platform that has kind of a spoken wheel approach. And so the Echo group trains a group of core providers that then kind of go on and make clinical differences um, in their settings or go on to train others. And so this for us was intended originally more of a hybrid model, but the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Ethiopian Pediatric Society got a grant from Lairdall to look at something related to the Helping Babies Survive program, newborn care in the delivery room. It was fairly open-ended from that standpoint. Um, We had eight sites with eight midwives who were identified as clinical quality improvement leads. And then what we did is we paired eight neonatologists, um, including you and me, from the United States with these sites. And I think, I hope we get into this a little bit. I think one of the really unique things we did too is we paired a trainee with each of the experienced neonatologists um, to help model good global health practices. And then kind of the beginning of the session was just what problem do we want to tackle? Like what are the gaps that people see in their delivery room settings as it relates to the Helping Babies Survive program? And kind of the two main ones that came out were delayed cord clamping and kangaroo mother care. And so it was actually really interesting to see the eight sites kind of talk amongst themselves and sort of agree, okay, let's all do the same thing so that we can compare strategies and compare data and learn from each other. And so everyone went with the delayed cord clamping and, you know, the goal is to have at least 60 seconds, kind of that one to three minutes after delivery. And this wasn't really being done or measured in a lot of the units. And so just seeing the like, yes, this is something manageable that we can tackle. It's something we can track. And then we had a year of kind of watching that process and learning QI and being available via WhatsApp and then having our monthly Zooms, kind of triaging institution-specific challenges with um, kind of like staffing questions or how, what does this mean? How do I make a run chart? How do I share my data? How do I convince people that this is important? And then um, really seeing like some QI champions emerge from this in Ethiopia that are dedicated to carrying on this change as well as others in their unit. Yeah. I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, to virtually travel to Ethiopia once a month and, and work with other experts in the field to make a difference in seeing those run charts change, where we're actually seeing improvement in, in delayed cord clamping. And then personally, I mean, for me, this global health experience that I had with you led to TIPQC's project, the optimal cord clamping project that, that we're actually doing now and getting ready to wrap up. And uh, we've had 27 birthing hospitals around our state, which is over half of the birthing hospitals in the state be involved in this. And we're approaching 90% of all of the babies born at these hospitals, which represent 70% of all the births in Tennessee are getting 60 seconds of delayed cord clamping. That's amazing. And I think it was all sparked by what, what we did with the echo project. And so it's exactly like what, you know, what you were asking before too, like, how do you take what you learn in one place and apply it back? And also just really shows 
you know, the same challenges exist everywhere, you know, and a lot of it is about like the human resources and the people and the practices of medicine and kind of like the dedication to great care. And so like the fact that you guys have that in Tennessee and that um, like that's what the focus was in Ethiopia as well, I think is just so reflective of like the humanity of medicine. Yeah. So overall, what was your favorite part of this project? Because I, I know we're at the point where we're writing the manuscript up now and getting some things together. And as you've had a, a chance to reflect over the past uh, year and watch it go into sustainment and still continue to, to make those contacts with people and discuss thing, what, things, what has been your favorite part? Oh, I'm going to be cheesy and say the people, um, <laughs> just which I think is kind of a, a cop-out answer. But it's, I think, within the U.S. group, getting to meet people like yourself and you know the other faculty and the the fellows who are coming on and interested in global health and see how people approach this field especially during a setting like the pandemic was just so wonderful and felt like a camaraderie and then paralleling that like really building connections with the coaches in ethiopia um, as well as, you know, Dr. Bogali and then Kunjit from the Ethiopian Pediatric Society is like really working with their leadership was wonderful. I, I'm going to Ethiopia at the end of the month, along with one of the fellows who participated in our program, and we're going to meet with them while we're there. And so I think it's just this real transcending of virtual to real life and kind of moving things forward. And it's just great to see how well people can work together. I think, you know, it was also nice to see that the outcomes improved and that this stuff can be implemented virtually. But I think what that part worked because the people worked. And so that's yeah. the part that was the root of it for me. And what was your yeah. favorite part? Wow. Um, obviously, the people, too. I mean, I formed a really tight bond with uh, with the, the healthcare worker I was I was paired with over there and with the fellow. It was amazing just to see how small little changes of an environment or uh, education that would occur could make a difference in the responsiveness to the medical team and the improvements that occurred. And that's specifically some of the stuff that we took into TPC's project to saw this work in Ethiopia. <laughs> now let's apply it to our cultural and, and social context and, and see the same response occur. So that has been just uh, fascinating to me see this happen cross-culturally and seeing the, the same impact occur within the healthcare system. If I can ask my own question, like the, if you were going to ask me like the hardest part as well with it, which is something that I wonder if you guys had um, when you rolled this out in Tennessee, I think once the dedicated funding period for this stopped and there was um, less organization around it, it a lot of the coaches, when we talked to them, said this will be harder to sustain without this infrastructure. And not that, it, I mean, they still had the passion and they still had the focus. And I think that outcomes will stay good, but the, the energy around QI and the organization of it, it without kind of the collective, it's, it's harder to maintain at the individual level, sort of what people were saying. And I, I guess... I don't know if I can use this and sort of hear from you. Like, did you have that same in Tennessee when you guys looked at this? You can't ask me questions on this podcast. Can't ask you questions. Okay. Now, so, so we've not gone into sustainment yet. 
with this project, but uh, once we do, I'm sure we'll do be doing another podcast to discuss sort of how it's it's going. We're real close to wrapping this project up. Um, so I, I want our audience to, as we begin to to wrap this podcast up with you, and man, I appreciate your time and going over these things and your passion for global health. And, and I hope that the people listening uh, to this, if they've never had a global health experience, that they'll contemplate attaching themselves to some organization, to some group of people who's doing work like this and not only just going somewhere and I mean, it's, it's sort of easy to, to go somewhere and do some primary care medical work for a week and then go back home and not make the connections, not see something really make sustained improvements in a culture and a setting and a, in a country and a society but to find an organization where you know that that's going to happen and you can make these long-term connections and see your effort and, and, and money that you've spent and your time that you have and going down there to see that actually make a difference in, in work. I think that's one of the most powerful things about global health. You've heard me and Charlotte talk about um, the things that you learn about yourself when you do work like this, the things that you learn about your fellow human being <laughs> when you do work like this, and the fact that this is something that can translate uh, from a low and middle income country setting all the way to a high income country setting like, like we live in. Exactly. You agree, Charlotte? I, I see you nodding your head. Our audience can't see that, but I can see. Yeah, you. No, I just, everything you say is so true that it's, I think these sustained experiences and kind of that ability to go back and continue to make change and continue to work with the same groups of people or even virtually continuing to work with the same groups of people on similar efforts. Um, that's, that's what's gratifying. I think that what makes you feel like you can, you're contributing and you're making a change in the world. And that's how you actually do make change in the world because there's investment, you know, I think it's, it's about giving it, of yourself to something that you're passionate about. And like, for, for me, that that's a more than one time, um, like commitment. Sharla, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Uh, and to our listeners, thanks so much for turning into another episode of healthy mom, healthy baby, Tennessee. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic, or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.